Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Uh, this is Latitude Book Shambles, I'm afraid to say there is no Josie. Uh, it's all quiet now. There's a slight noise of a pigeon in the background. But earlier on in these fields, it was very noisy. So just a warning that there will be some background noise. All of these were recorded in different corners of a Suffolk field. Sometimes on stage we had Mavis Staples in the background, which was wonderful, by the way, uh, or public service broadcasting, or many other bands, or occasionally merely noisy poets talking. So you will hear some background noise, and that is just obviously part of the festival atmosphere. So welcome to this. There's that pigeon I mentioned. So welcome to the Latitude Book Shambles Specials. Welcome to our Latitude Book Shambles Special, and today's special is a poetry special. Hopefully we're going to have a lot of these poets doing full-length interviews very shortly on the normal Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Our first guest is Holly McNish, and you can see Holly as part of our Billy Bragg and Friends for Helen and Barry Benefit gig, which is at the new Wimbledon Theatre on October 23. That event is to raise money for people fighting cancer, and you can read more about that event and why we're doing it, including a message from uh, Barry Crimmins himself, who is the, the impetus for this event. You can find out about that at cosmicshambles.com slash Helen and Barry and performing that night will be Robin and Josie obviously plus Holly McNish, uh, Billy Bragg, Charlotte Church, James Acaster, Mark Thomas, Grace Petrie and lots more so do come along. October 23 tickets are on sale now and if you can't make it uh, there are links on that page as well to just make a donation. But now here is Robin and Holly. Holly, you're doing a... Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you is well, I'm trying to work out how to write poetry. Right. Uh, Phil Jupiter has said it's a ridiculous move to go from stand-up to poetry. It's meant to be the other way round. How do you... Uh, do you have a process or is it a very... Is it many different processes when you're... I guess it's a few different ones. Normally it's a bit like a vomit, someone described it as, I'd say. So I just get an idea in my head and sort of write it down quickly and if I don't write it down straight away then I kind of forget it right. I think at first it used to be a bit of a, a copy thing when I was really little so I got in the habit of writing a certain rhythm and rhyme but that was from copying Courtney Love lyrics and then trying to write my own poems to fit in with the same Was it also song? her sensibility as well, We that bit where you're a Loved teenager her. and you think, um, this is what I, I'm like this. Yeah, basically I can, f- I can really feel what you're feeling in my little village in Upper Bucklebury. <laughs> yeah, and now it's just sort of like a... I've written so many, I think it's, it's just sort of comes out like that. I find it hard to write a poem that doesn't rhyme, basically. Yeah, even though I'd say whenever I'm doing a workshop, I, like, ban people from trying to rhyme it, which is a bit silly. So how do you... When, when you're not rhyming, in terms of... So it's all about... Is it about rhythm? Is Because that's what I wondered, is that the, the few that I've written... And I've, I've written them mainly because we're doing the speakeasy tonight, and this used to be, you know, part meant to be the poetry tent as well, so yeah. I thought I'd give it a go. I'm not in any way, by the way, I'm suggesting that it's poetry. I'm just trying to work I'm out sure what, it, what it is, though. But I d- See, what interesting... I, I once read a book called The Monkey's Mask by Dorothy Porter. Uh-huh. And it's a uh, um, detective fiction thriller uh, written entirely in verse oh wow 
and I was just amazed by it because it, it's what makes it so good is it's very thrilling because there's no words that aren't required because she's writing it as poetry as well yeah. so it, it was turned into a film and of course the film doesn't really work because you think no 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 the reason it's so great is it's, it's a poem it's, yeah. so do you find what do you when you're telling people you know or, or luring people into writing poetry are there any particular rules is there anything where you go this has now moved over to prose I don't think the main thing no I don't know about the difference between that I think poetry and prose a lot of the difference is just where you finish the line like, um, I tell them to, like, with each new idea, move on to the next line. I mean, this is going to make me sound terrible. I'll probably lose a lot of workshop work now doing this. But um, We have very few uh, uh, workshop employees listening <laughs> to this. We've done the research on the demographics. For me, it's more because it's normally young, like, young school kids that I work with. It's more about getting, like, what they want to say out, like, their ideas out. So I, I more do it, I sort of give them little... Like think of a place where you were really, really happy and try and describe it with a sort of romantic poet head on, and then I get them to tell me three really totally boring things about themselves, but just to give them a sort of mix of types of sentences. So I'm not really into structure and form and stuff in poetry. And then I figure normally after they've done that, they've got this whole sheet of just kind of like bullet points written in different ways and then they go and take that and make it into a poem so they tend to the ones that all the kids with like the funny they like sort of funny jokey personality they tend to take all these like short staccato sentences and put them together the ones that are interested in rhyming it and being more formal they tend to just pick the sort of romantic things or or just take what they've written out the only thing that I definitely do every time is after they've written a poem I give them a word limit not a word limit, like a number of sentences limit, because if it just goes on and on and repeats, I think that's what I do quite a lot. Um, and I, I like to edit just by saying, right, you have to take out like half, cut it down by half and just see how it is. I think that's my main thing. Like blurt it all out and then edit it after, because I like what comes out of your head straight away. I don't like to yeah, write Yeah, that's what I find form. is interesting, because I'm sure there are people that, that... But it is that bit going, oh, this is almost fully formed, and then suddenly I'll just find that I get to a sentence and go, oh, and then this is all shit, and it stops, and I go, I haven't got to the end yet, and, yeah. and it's, there's a lump right in the middle. There's this awful kind of, you know, tumescent growth, which is fucked up any sense <laughs> of rhythm. But then cut it, I think. Yeah, don't you're be like right. precious about it. I don't know. With my, I had an editor for the first time with this new book, and um, he what was is just the new like, book, by the way? It's called Plum. Um, is it out already? Yeah, yeah, it came out like two weeks ago. Um, but yeah, it was Don Patterson was the editor of it, and I've never had an oh, editor wow. before. But it was quite awkward because it was a lot about like thrush and chlamydia and sex and teenage stuff. And then he was sort of, oh well, maybe do you need this line about tenor towels in later life? And it was like. Already asked what stuff is, but yeah, he said like cut the last two lines of every poem, and I didn't do it to everything. But he's very much like the last line will just be you panicking about finishing the poem. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So you write something and then you're like, oh, but I should end it. Oh, I should end it. Oh, how do I want to end it? He's like, just take, just take all that away basically and leave it a bit more punchy or a bit sharper. Yeah. Who do you read? I mean, when you started, when you moved from kind of lyrics, transcribing lyrics to. Uh, actually like thinking oh right I'm actually I mean how did you what was the process of you um, was it performance no not at all I genuinely can't remember why I started writing like I've got diaries in poems from the age of eight and they're all in poems like there's no prose at all 
and then I started writing it in prose as well when I was about 20 but up until then like all my teenage diaries are just poems just just like you know like real banal stuff like not getting into a nightclub <laughs> being annoyed that I sat outside Venom nightclub at night or there'll be ones where I thought I was very deep um, but yeah I don't know why I started I think like the kiddie ones is, a lot of them are copying like Alan Olberg or like Please Mrs Butler was a book that I loved it was like one of my favourite books but then so was Lying in Witch and Wardrobe I didn't start writing stories so I'm not really sure why but everything like all my revision notes were in poems like I fancied a guy at uni who was obsessed with the Labour government and I learnt the entire Labour cabinet to try and get a date by writing poems about each person like a loser and it didn't work um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever told anyone that before had it all a chart on my wall um, yeah <laughs> Do you do, do, have you ever found that, have, have you destroyed any of your, you know that bit where, especially, I think there can be a panic during teenage years where you suddenly look back at a yeah, diary no, and I think. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't rip up any poems, nothing like that. And actually, I'm so glad. And that's the one thing I tell all the school kids that I work with. I'm like, even if you think it's the worst thing ever, when you're drunk and you're 30 and your friends have come around, it, it will be the best thing <laughs> to like sit at. No, I didn't. And there was one which I wish I'd have put in the book, actually, because the, the I don't mean to be talking about, but the, the book's got a lot of my old poems in it. So it's poems that I've written now about childhood and teenage life but it's also got poems that I wrote when I was 8 and 10 sort of stuck in and there's one poem that was called Like a Porn Star that I wrote when I was 17 about uh, what my 18th birthday was going to be like in this car on the way to the local bowling alley and it didn't turn out like that um, but that's probably the most embarrassing poem I've ever written and I probably should have put it in there because a lot of the other embarrassing ones are in there no I love it, I love looking back and, and actually loads of the time I think I've, I've learned I've got more knowledge now but I've learned more crap as well mm. and actually my like 10 year old poems can teach me a lot now just like my 7 year old daughter teaches me a lot about like how to be happy or what actually you know you want in life a little bit if I look back to what I was writing about when I was 10 or 8 it was all about like stop throwing litter and you know stop polluting the river or whatever it was and like well yeah actually <laughs> there's something really lovely isn't there about that the the idealism of when you when you have to see those competitions that are done for, in schools to say you know we need a poster about don't leave you know pick up your dog poo yeah and then you see these and and you go oh that the, the wretched thing is that some people you know feel that they have to lose it and others continue to battle on perhaps yeah. you know the, the idealism is changed by the bumps of reality but well, it's still well, that's it isn't it and also you grow up and realize it's not actually that simple to like like some people know that they probably shouldn't throw their litter but don't give a toss like, i think that was my realization yeah i don't know especially things to do with know, things to do with sex especially like i like reading stuff i wrote when i was like 14 15 16 17 and then whenever i go and speak to teenagers now and sometimes schools tell me not to read out certain poems i think but i wrote this when i was 15 mm. and like and these kids are 16 and it's about like i don't know i've got this one poem that a few schools have asked me about giving a blowjob when i didn't want to and it's i think it's sort of sad and sort of funny at the same time but it's like, i'd quite like kids to be able to learn from these mistakes like you know you teach them other mistakes or you if you're good at maths you teach your kid maths better so why not be able to pass on this stuff but it's yeah, it's funny, like, if it was something I've written when I was older and schools tell me not to do it, but when it's something I actually wrote at their age, it just seems a bit more censored than normal. 
I found that I was doing a gig at Union Chapel and there was there were two 13 year olds in and these people were going oh my they're only 13 I thought yeah but when I was 13 I was desperate to find out ways of sneakily staying up late to watch Alexi Sale and Rick Mail and all yeah. these late night comedy shows you're ready for it's it like by then trash, you know the thing is don't though, <laughs> start picking on them. oh look at you you third no yeah. just let them just enjoy let, the fact yeah. they're going because we were desperate well, all, the, all those different regulations of what age you're allowed in totally. go also you don't know what like you know people's hormones are different people's bodies grow differently my god there was kids at nine that were like I was like at 16 and then you know it's not yeah I think if they've come in like let them listen do you feel in, in, under any pressure to uh, be because you almost you know become some kind of spokesperson for groups of people because things like the the brilliant poem um, which is probably the first time I became aware of you or probably something of a cliche for a lot of people which was about you know public breastfeeding oh, yeah. and that that seemed to change that that went around many many places yeah that's still that's still the one that I do most gigs from I think. Not, I, I don't mean like literature tours and stuff like that, but most things that aren't to do with poetry, like conferences and student midwifery conferences. I do a lot of things like that. No, I love being a spokesperson for that because I, f- I feel like, um, well, I don't know. I, f- I didn't realise that so many people were sort of also embarrassed about it and actually feel like the psychological side of not breastfeeding is not in any of the leaflets. It's still... I feel like the way that we try and encourage women to breastfeed, it's like she's not breastfeeding because she doesn't want to. She's doing it because it's there's no support or it's painful or she's got mastitis or she's just too embarrassed to do it. And the reason she's too embarrassed to do it is not because of her own personality, it's because of the culture she lives in. So all of the, you know, all of the emphasis on helping women decide whether or not they want to, it's like, well, just if it was me, I'd stuff that and try and work on the culture first and then... And then after that, maybe that, but yeah, I don't know. I just, um, I think it's so weird the way we talk about it. And actually, if I could do do one thing with my life, it would probably be to try and do more stuff to do with breastfeeding. Because I think it's it's pretty hard for uh, lots of people to do it because it looks like you're pressurising women to do something with their body, which is obviously you shouldn't do. But on the other side of things, every time I go to like an environmental conference or like an anti-capitalist conference or stuff to do with recycling, it's like or health, like none of them talk about breastfeeding. Whereas, you know, it's like the most sustainable, free, anti-capitalist resource I think that we probably have on this planet as humans. You know, and it's not mentioned because a lot of, I guess, a lot of men don't want to touch it with a barge pole for for fair enough reasons, really. Um, but yeah, I just I just think it should be at the start of every like health conference or every environmental so policy. A, or I suppose similar the, the Action Aid tent. I don't know if you've seen that. They're still running that campaign uh, about the uh, taboo of periods that in a lot exactly. of cultures yeah. where um, and that bit where they just kind of whether it's connected to poetry or comedy, it's all these things where there are ways of approaching it where you go, it's all right. This is not going to be. It's still going to be kind of entertaining, and it might have yeah. something that lies. Yeah. Um, because I, I, I tweeted a while ago, have you seen that painting of um, Donald Trump that a woman did just using her menstrual blood and tampons as brushes? Like, <laughs> no, I as, as a kind of, because I think he once said that thing about, uh, you know, and bleeding from her, whatever. And that, oh, someone yeah, thought, yeah. well, here's my retort. It's a very oh, good painting. God. She's got a real, a real knack. But, but I, it's amazing. I, I, I found it such a, a great, I thought, that's a good satire piece, isn't it? Isn't and, it? Uh, and when I put it up on, the, on Twitter, I, you know, the reactions were varied. Yeah, I, f- I find it absolutely fascinating, actually. All the 
all the taboos like i don't know periods as well even just i've just written a <laughs> there it is amazing oh my god it's quite a good picture it's good it? isn't it different shades as well which might wait different times of the month um yeah, yeah like all the taboos around it it's just so unhelpful you think can we not like make a taboo about like stabbing someone or like you know what i mean rather than period blood i've i don't know i've been doing quite a lot of stuff to do with um sport and why girls giving up sport a lot and there's loads of i had to like meet them with chelsea football club and stuff and they've got um lots of programs about it and i've had lots of meeting with different people um just from having just um wrote a theater play about women's football and um and it's amazing that a lot of people heading up those campaigns and going into schools they're still talking about things like oh well we've set up like a dance club or even a pole dancing in one or like a um like nothing competitive things that they think girls will enjoy more to try and get them in and then we sort of mention football and all this stuff and they've been like just showing me sheets and sheets of things about 12 year old girls stopping sport and and there's one guy it was a like quite a young guy and he said you know i've gone in and we're doing all these assemblies about how good it is for your body and how healthy and how good it is for like you know how you look and staying thin then I, i mentioned the word periods and sports bras and tampons rather than sack showers and here he just went bright red and was like oh no we haven't mentioned that I was like, well, what the fuck like why the hell do you think girls stop playing sport at 12 like it's not rocket science is it it's, it's just like and even the campaigns on telly i think just have an advert it shows you how to put a tampon in and say that it's not going to make you lose your virginity i think that would maybe be more helpful so yeah it's just all these sort of it's the same as breastfeeding i think like all the taboos and and none of the pamphlets talk about you know feeling weird about having sex afterwards or your partner touching your boobs and your baby touching them on the same day and all this it's quite it's quite a head fuck all that sort of have stuff have you been surprised by the fact i mean that that reaction where sometimes you can bring something up on stage and you're very you're not aware really because if it is a taboo it's not necessarily spoken about that commonly and you kind of say it and then suddenly 50, 60, 100, whatever, people want to talk to you because they go, I thought. Yeah, yeah because so much of our inner mind, we've got all these things going on, and we look at everyone else's exterior, and we can't imagine necessarily going, yeah. I'm the yeah, only one. Yeah, I love that, though. I love it, especially with older couples. I get quite a lot of sort of 70 to 80-year-old couples in gigs, and I love them coming to talk to me about, like, sex after having a baby and stuff that they've obviously not spoken to each other about. <laughs> Uh, I am with uh, Murray Luckman Young, who is going on at the speakeasy now, isn't it? The poetry tent That's is right. dead. It's no more. Why is that? Why do you think? I, I'm, I'm surprised. I heard it was it? a budgetary thing, where I guess maybe they they recognise that by sticking more food stalls in, um, making money off that, then they're actually making more money because it was kind of you could argue that Latitude was a slightly over curated festival and had had more than you'd need. So I think they've slimmed it down, like every like any good menu is supposed to be a bit slimmer than the thicker ones, isn't it? Yeah, so, but yeah, also, this isn't a white clean menu anymore. This no. is one which, if you spill <laughs> something on, it is actually damaged and must be thrown away. <laughs> That's uh, now you were I mean there was a point where you were seen as being very much at the forefront I suppose of a new wave of of live poetry and 
I wonder how you fit. That seems to be a lot now. Of it's become, it's no longer something that's just found in Bungie's folk cellar, uh, which sadly no longer exists. Uh, you know, these kind of twenty people rooms. That since since uh, what year was it when uh, I suppose it was it um, simply everyone's um, doing uh, taking cocaine. That 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 was to me the moment where I thought, wow, that's high profile for a live poet. Well, it depends it depends on what sort of um, period of my kind of. Uh, <clears throat> rise at that time you're talking about but I so I signed a record deal with a company called Almo Sounds uh, in I think 95 and then that sort of slid and I then got a deal with EMI Records which um, I think they then I think Almo Sounds released the vinyl thing with Simple Everyone's Taking Cocaine on it and uh, but the sort of the big publicity thing hit in 97 where it became like an where it became, I think the thing is, <clears throat> what it was is, is there's two different stories really. There's me as an artist, which was me doing my, my spoken word, which I was doing in Ronnie Scott's and various other sort of clubs, doing stuff with Selena, Gordon, we, we were hanging out in the same scene. There was a few people, but um, then there was my record deal and then there was me as the international me- media story. And... <clears throat> I think there was a kind of separation between those two things is that, uh, you know, if you've got a story of a guy who's signed a million pound record deal and it gets picked up by Reuters and it goes right the way around the world and it becomes an international media story, um, it it's different than somebody who's doing, who's selling out Ronnie Scott's mm. playing 350 seats, which is what I was doing. So I was sort of doing well and I was building and it was coming for sure. But then, then they tried to jump it by putting this story on it or whether they even tried or not who knows perhaps it just was a, a, a thing that happened with a PR guy and a journalist but it caught fire because it was silly season there was nothing else to write about I think and, and then as a result I became this story and so then I as a, as a human being and a, and a, a person had to um, cope with the fallout of living with being not necessarily an internationally famous poet but an internationally famous media story and I think there is a difference and so I was a huge media story and it was uh, you know it was a it was an extremely challenging experience does it so would you find that when you were going on so I wasn't going to go through that I was like, by the way Selena Godden must be older than I thought she was uh, the, yeah, you've given it away she's the, I'm she's sure the, she said she only started performing in 2009 she's, uh, she's the Dorian Gray of poetry uh, <laughs> her, her, her memoir is, is fantastic I don't know if you've read it uh it's a really interesting book um but uh, that point of walking on stage did you suddenly go oh now i walk on not merely with expectation but also there can be a heightened level of you know kind of just people once someone has, has a million pound contract around them then sometimes people will kind of go oh well let's see how good they are and you think oh, hang on a minute these poems are really good and this is really good spoken word but now i'm being analyzed and scrutinized in a way which is making it more difficult to communicate well i think the thing that happened on that front was again it's it's sort of twofold is that <clears throat> the first one is that i think what people probably didn't understand and it took me a while to work out is that uh, as a product of the um, record industry, uh, which is entertainment, um, I was sold to the public as a, in, in quotes, literary figure. And the press is part of the literary industry. And there is a divide, and you're not supposed to cross it traditionally. And I think that the press, after 
realizing that it was a great story and it would sell papers and la 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 suddenly realized that they you know how how come I went to university and, and earning 19 grand a year as a as a journalist and, and this little guy this little person this nobody is suddenly you know signing a million pound record deal and I think a huge it, it, it messed around with the status quo um, and so then there was an enormous backlash there was also um, some some very kind of uh, destructive and angry stuff from people like Michael Horowitz who was um, who, who became almost demented in his attacking of it um, and and there were other people within spoken word um, who let themselves down in my opinion um, but it's not something that I've, I've sort of held on to it just I was just surprised at a few people that they but also you you find within that world what happens is that if there's a story people jump on it because it, it, it's currency mm. but then as far as your, your first question goes um, the the idea of walking on stage for me was never a problem because I was always very, you know, um, uh, secure in my ability as a performer. And but what did happen was I suddenly lost confidence as a writer and I stopped writing um, until the point where um, I stopped writing completely and get and stopped work completely for about two two years maybe. Um, and then Mark Rylance from Shakespeare's Globe called me up and asked me to write a prologue for The Golden Ass. Um, and then uh, Radio 4 called up and said what I do Saturday live and so I'd kind of I, I'd, I think I probably had something a little around I guess a, a sort of minor nervous breakdown as a result of the experience um, and I had to learn to write again and so I think there's that thing which you hear you know that sort of 27 year old thing where the spillage of your entire childhood and, and early youth comes out at a certain point and you've got all this abundance of creativity. But I think a lot of people aren't actually aware of the way they write and I think that was certainly the case for me or the technique that they use or the process they have. So I had to go back and say all this stuff that was just flowing out of me which I thought was great and loads of fun, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't write at all. So I actually had to work out the technical um, process of my writing, relearn it and then learn to write again so as a result of which I, I now you know can produce a piece every week for BBC six music and you know doing something for test match special and Ferrari have just called me up and I'm writing something for their 70th anniversary and I've got a book of you know of 300 pages of uh, poems so I'm I'm prolific um, but only as a result of, of the of the absolute carnage uh, of of what happened then, I think. I mean, maybe it would have happened another way, but um, so yeah, it rocked me to my foundations. The whole thing. What's your process of writing? Because I think there's different. You, I always used to be fascinated that Nick Cave would would count it almost as when I say an office job. Obviously, it's far more that. But he would get up and he would go to his writing room, and he would that would be he would have a working day. Mm. And then, of course, we have you know the, people often mention Graham Greene, a thousand words a day, and the, when he got to the thousandth word, stop. That's it. No more words. Neither one nor the other, neither either side. Do you have a have a process, or is it more scattergun than that? Well, if I'm doing something, so, so for instance, like I was doing, um, you know, if I'm doing something for, for a, a film, for instance, then I have to do periods of, of writing to get through what it is. But um, a lot of my stuff recently has been based around commission. I'm starting to write more for myself again. Um, and if I could possibly have it my way, then I would do three hours a day 
um, no more at all. But as it is, sometimes I do absolutely nothing because I'm on the road. I write a lot on my phone now, actually, um, just sitting on buses and stuff. So I'm going back to that sort of idea of a notebook writing thing. But I have to snatch time from, from where I can get it because I'm you know, doing lots of things and I'm on the road a lot as well. So the idea of being on the road and having a working process is very difficult, particularly if you're driving yourself. But So I went to India a couple of uh, Christmases ago and just sat down for a month and wrote three hours a day. And it's the most joyful experience because it provides the thing which so few of the sort of peripatetic, uh, you know, poetry community on the road have, which is um, stability. And I have absolutely no stability. My BBC Six music poem is the only stable thing I have in my life. And I see my children, um, you know, once a fortnight. So that... um when you, because I, I was in, I was asking Luke Wright about this. Well, that some people I've spoken to are poets, uh, lyricists. I mean, stand up probably in, in less way, but some people are able to. Uh, there is an incredible energy that leads to fifty lines, and then a constant like chop change, chop change. Other people, it seems. I've come do it in a, in a process of they find three lines and they leave it and then they come back and, it, and it's a much slow, how do you have one particular process or do you find there are various different ways that you can approach constructing well, a poem I think um, the first idea within it all is, is how one approaches the, the concept of the premise so for me if I'm doing something for six music um and they'll say, OK, we've been talking about this this week. If a premise jumps into my head, so this week it was the idea of... They were talking about things that you shouldn't tell your father. And I was thinking, well, that's really boring. And then I'd just been listening to this whole thing about these two 30-mile-wide spaceships being found on the, uh, in, the, in Antarctica with this, the remnants of the long-headed race of people who, through their genetic experiments, created mankind in its current form and lost the battle with a lizard race and uh, the lizards still rule us as the 1%, etc., etc. So I, and I just was so fascinated by it. Just, I, I, just as a story, I didn't question whether you know whether it's it's the truth or not I just just was absolutely fascinated and I thought well that's what so I just thought I just I just regurgitated all of that as the things you shouldn't tell your dad (laughs) and and that was just a really funny premise and it was great whereas but if that doesn't if I don't have something which um you know which is easy like that um then I have a process which is based around the idea of um, what you call the, it's the, the creation of novelty through uh, random divination. So the idea of um, taking individual... If, if, so this completely rules out any potential for writer's block. So the, so the idea is that you... And this is what brought me back from you know, my million-pound uh, hiatus, was that um, you can take two words that don't go well together, like Lamborghini, roof rack and you know or Lamborghini bus stop yeah it's better um, and you take those and you just come up so you can write two columns of words if you want and then you just take all of the words that don't go with each other and put them together then try and turn them into a sentence then try and pair the sentences then try and answer the sentences with another sentence and then just keep on shifting them and shuffling them until they start to make some sort of sense and then, then that, that is uh, the idea of uh, invoking the muse through um, a process so not just sitting there thinking when am I going to think of something when's the right answer going to come some people will walk and so if I get a really good premise then I can go for it 
then you have that sort of dreamlike poetry writing where you where, where an idea comes in and you sort of let let the uh, let the idea speak through you. But if that doesn't work, then there's always there are always mechanical processes which can kickstart you into those areas. So I have about two or three um, different ones. But the one I teach um, in in a sort of creativity course in schools and colleges is the one that I was just talking about the columns of words. And what that does is it just gets the brain working. Uh, it gets the brain. I think it's equivalent of doing something like magic mushrooms or something it just starts to get the brain um, functioning on a different level and realizing that it's not just all around it's not all about um, uh, route one a to b thinking and you can go other directions and it's not about you it's about the word and it's about being a servant of the word and a conduit for the word to travel through do you have uh, mm. is, is there any, are there any particular poets that you feel are just not known enough? And more? I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That poetry, it, it, there's there's certain phases people go to where they may well dismiss it, and yet everyone listens to lyrics. Everyone you know, that way. Who do you feel is is someone who uh, is perhaps overlooked? Who we should be celebrating? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on on, on what is what is the point where we decide somebody is celebrated. I mean, if you look at all the people I on... I suppose red, actually, even that. You know, that bit where you sometimes think you there's something that you love and you go, why does no one... Every time I bring this person up, no one seems to know their work and I want them... You know, the person that you... Every time you see their book in a bookshop, you think, I must buy that and I'll pass that on to someone. I have to keep... Well, that's a difficult question. I'm just trying to think of, 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 the, of the right person to... Uh... My mind's gone completely blank. That's right. It's a really, it's always a hard yeah, one, isn't yeah. it? Think, I've actually never read anything my whole life or ever <laughs> no, seen any other human beings. No, no. I've, 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 lived, I've, tricky I've it lived in a cave. <laughs> I have to think about that. Some I'll, shadows of poets, that's all we know I'll of. I'll text you. <laughs> Do you, um, have you got, what, what's your next uh, project? Or are you still, you, you're spreading yourself, you know, travelling the world, the schools, Six Music... Well, Radio Six Music four. is my my ongoing gig, which I'm very grateful for, and it and it um, it just it keeps me honest, and I have to write every week without without fail. I've got to produce at least one piece. Um, then I'm, I've got this piece with um, Ferrari at the moment, which is kind of exciting, which is um, a piece on the colour red. Uh, and they which, do know it's going to be about Ferrari bus stop, do they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. You, ha- you have warned them about this. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's going to be masculine. It's going to have the word red repeated a lot in it, and it's going to have lots of engines and things like that. But but that's that's quite an interesting thing because I just handed in a thing to Radio Four um, where I was going to do a documentary on, uh, and it might still happen actually, a documentary on the sort of these sort of manifestation and affirmation books that are going around, like the Secret, where you oh, yeah. where you say you you start feeling what it is to have something. And then you get it. So it's it's, it's the new spirit, the spiritual self help books about getting stuff, and and I put at the bottom of it. Um, and during this process, Murray will try and manifest a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ferrari called up about three weeks later and said, "Would you like to write a poem?" And I thought that's better than having a Ferrari, really, because I wouldn't know what to do with one, to be quite honest. But um, uh, other stuff, yeah. So that I've got a series of I'm working on a series of children's poems, which is going really well. Um, so I just did the test match special. Uh, 60th anniversary which is coming out in a couple of weeks time on Five Live um, I have been writing erotic poetry which has been quite interesting uh, so the, the Amorous magazine published one of mine oh, a couple of yeah, weeks ago oh yeah that's just started hasn't it which, which was kind of a bit of a leap for me because I've, I've, I've you know I've 
because of working with Six and on Sean Keaveney's show, a lot of my stuff's just becoming more and more humorous, and it was just really nice to write something dark and sexy. Um, and so I think I'm going to write more of that. Um, let's hope the standard stays. <laughs> but I don't end up at the bad you sex Sean's awards show tonight. Uh, no, I, I, oh. I, I asked me to, but I did. I did it at Glastonbury, but. Um, I'm, I'm doing my gig and leaving and go straight down to Ways With Words at Dartington tomorrow. Oh, so I've got a gig uh, down there, yeah. I remember that one, because it used to be sponsored by the Telegraph. Right. And uh, the people, Telegraph readers who had the whole front row, they have their, their seats reserved. And I remember doing a show down there and <laughs> the second half, no one was in the front row. All of the uh, Telegraph readers had gone. Well, not all of them, but there was a certain, the whole of the front row had gone anyway. Um, John Lennon just uh, people in there for, just rattle your jewellery yeah <laughs> it wasn't even one of, I mean I'd only said a few things about Charles Darwin it wasn't one of my lefty shows or anything I'd love to see how uh, El- Elvis McGonagall goes yeah. <laughs> or, or Tiller the Stockbroker the, uh, is there a, who, have you had a moment where you've looked at something you've found something and you've just gone oh shit I was going to write that I mean I, you know that moment where sometimes I will see whether it might be an idea for a film or whether it might be a piece of stand-up oh, and I go, oh! Okay, I'll tell you, I mean, it's happened to me lots of times. And there is that thing that they say, you know, the, the Times crossword is easier to do the day after it's been done by someone else because it's been done and once you have an idea, it's in the ether and therefore lots of other people can have it and et cetera, et cetera. But um, working with BBC a lot, um, I put things in all the time saying, OK, what a great idea. And I was doing something in Scotland uh, about, it's supposed to be about the referendum, and they ended up taking all the content of the referendum out of it. And it just looked like me dicking around in Scotland, um, which is essentially what it was, what it was um, without any political content. Anyway, so there was a producer there, and I was reading this book about Iceland, and they were saying that they were diverting a road in Iceland um, to uh, so it didn't uh, go over an elf house. And so they still believe in elves in, in Iceland. And, in, and, um, and I said, well, what a great program. So what we could do is we go to Iceland, we'll meet all these people, we'll study, because, you know, in Cornwall and Ireland, it's been in very, very recent history that people are still... You know, the, the religion of the she was discussed by Yeats, wasn't it? So, um, and it's still alive in Iceland. And, and, but there's an element of like, you know, okay, we're going to protect our environment by using this ancient thing as well. And so we put it in, and a month later, got a call from the producer sorry, they're not interested. A year later, James Nochty goes to Ireland to, uh, to, to, to look into the elf houses of La La La. And it's just like, that was not the first time that's happened to me. I can't say that they stole my idea at all because, you know, it, it was out there. But, you know, yeah, there's some difference very though, isn't there, between <laughs> synchronicity and someone going, well, that does seem like a good idea, these pieces of A4 that have been left on a. I presume they're just for anyone, these A4. Yeah, bits yeah, of paper, what have we got? What have we got for Jim? He needs something. What have we got? Oh, what about elves, Jim? Do you want to do that? Have you ever been to Iceland? No, no, I'd love to go. I've neither though, met yeah. an elf nor been to Iceland. This is the double whammy I'd hoped for. Um, I had another one years and years ago, which was about a guy chainsawing. Uh, it was for a, I wrote something for a uh, frozen vodka company, and my 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 uh, idea was a guy goes out with a chainsaw, chainsaws is chainsaws a hole in the ice and dives in, um, uh, and uh, I mean it sounds like a very simple idea but that that was I, mean, I think I told somebody about it it was about three months later that was out but and then you hear people t- you hear people nicking your style and your flow on uh, as well um, 
and I've nearly did a cease and desist on someone once because it was just it was it was blatantly stolen. But then, you know, there's just no point. And I think that there was a great line this uh, this lawyer once told me when I had somebody who actually st- stole something from me, and I and I wanted to go after him and 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 take him to court. And he said, look. You, you want to get involved in in anger, in in legal wranglings, in 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 in, in pursuing this person. He said, "I will do it for you. It will cost you a lot of money, but what I suggest is you take all of the creative energy that you're about to lose in this legal process, which will be completely rinsed out of you, and use it on doing something you love and not chasing someone through court." And so, the way I look at it, what's that great? It's, it's the abundance of. You know, I'm not short of ideas, so it's not a big deal to me. And I, I've, you know, I, and if somebody wants to go around nicking other people's ideas, and that's up to them. But if you buy into it, I think that's when you start, you know, the road down to becoming a supervillain, yeah, you know, in your own right, as you monologue, as you've got them uh, by the neck on the edge of a precipice. You stole my poems. You stole my ideas. <laughs> you realise you're just as bad as they are. So no, swim towards the light. I say. Yeah, I've always relied on yeah. a. Uh, frenetic and uh, cack-handed uh, <laughs> method of delivery which is uh, no one would wish to thieve so uh, that's helped <laughs> things enormously what about actually seeing a bit you know when you, you read someone's work and you go wow oh that's so beautiful you know the bit where you just think oh the potential that I, I, I would love to I would love to have written that so rather than actually someone take but that bit where you go oh the, those moments almost which stop you from doing what you do because you see something of such beauty or such intensity do you, are the, are, have you, do you ever find yourself coming across that kind of work and thinking that this has stopped me in the tracks for a day I'll get back tomorrow but for the time being I have to bask in someone else's imagination cause well the last just... time I, that happened to me I was in uh, Jerez in, uh, down in the sort of south of uh, Spain in January and I was there for Flamenco Festival and it's amazing all the gypsies are there doing flamenco and it's incredibly powerful and um, and I I had uh, um, the Ted Hughes poem You Hated Spain uh, with me and and I read it out loud a couple of times to a few people out you know with a drinking sherry late at night out, you know, in, in a place with a big bull's head on the wall and you know, every, every, all the gypsies just in there playing more and more and more flamenco which is astonishing and singing and, um, and I, I read that out loud and I just thought you know, I'm, I'm not like the biggest Ted Hughes fan but I just thought it was so amazing and poignant and it was about Sylvia Plath and you know about how she didn't understand Spain and but the images you know the, his his ability to conjure image I just thought you know you had just pretty awestruck by 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 the power that he could pull down from assembling images and then but beautifully constructing a narrative to sit with it as well and a, and a bleak one at that as well and there's a certain bleakness to to, to Spain in, in, in its uh, you know you get into the history of it and what actually happened there and that sort of um. so uh, joined by uh, heroes of the spoken word once young heroes of the spoken word but not saying anywhere it's no. interesting I, th- I think I'm joined by two people who probably when they first met me thought imagine being that old and in fact now they are <laughs> uh, Luke yeah. Wright and John Osborne it's possible uh, it's Luke, you, how old are you Robin uh, Are you allowed to say? I I am no I'm so old. I'm no longer certain how old I am. Mm. There is a certain point you get to that. I'm 48 now. How 48. old you used to be? 
I was. I think I was perpetually forty-eight. Oh yeah. Uh, I think yeah. I think that's exactly true. I should imagine when we first met you, you probably were the age that we are now, which is thirty-five. It's like I always enjoyed telling Josie Long that when Josie Long used to always go, ah, old man, I go, you're now three years older. Josie yeah. said something very interesting, which is that 35 is both old and young at the same time. 35 is the crossover where at 35, more people start voting Tory than voting Labour. Like 35 is the moment where it crosses over. You know, the young people vote Labour, old people vote Tory. 35 is that crossover point. So this time next year, we might be at the Conservative Club. Technically, I'm 34 then. <laughs> I yeah, remain 34. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's yeah. interesting. So, I'll start with you, Luke. You, you, uh, you've just done your new show. Yep. And uh, can you give a little, because this is going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, so it's called Frankie Var. It's what I call a verse play. It's basically a very, very long poem, but we can't, we don't, we don't dare call it a poem for marketing purposes. Uh, no one will come to an hour long poem. Uh, so, it's like it's one man, uh, and I, uh, play, and I, I tell it. Uh, told in verse and it's the story of a, a 1980s ranting poet well, not a real one one, one I've invented uh, and the story of him uh, going on tour with a band called The Midnight Shift which is an excellent name for a band if I do say yeah, so myself really I was pleased with that um, and yeah it, it all just goes pear shape basically but it's a, it's a show about um, about belief you know really wanting to believe in stuff and it's set against the backdrop of all the, the infighting in the, in the, uh, the Labour Party in the 1980s which I hope provides a neat parallel with what we're going through now and it's about how you can't really you know slavishly blindly follow a belief you have to learn to compromise at some point that we all have to compromise to a certain extent so it's kind of about that so it's a sort of kind of a growing up tale do you john you've you've done uh is it two books now uh three books three books and also again you perform live your spoken word do you technically count yourself as a spoken word artist is that where the the tent they place you in uh not really. I can. I still think of myself as a writer who right. performs sometimes, uh, which suits me quite well. So, um, yeah, I have just done last night at Latitude. I did my first, uh, the new show that I'm doing for Edinburgh. It's called Circled in the Radio Times, but it's not. A th- it's under spoken word in the th- in the fringe brochure. It's not theatre and it's not comedy, and it would feel a bit odd to put it into either of those categories because it is just me. It's kind of a short story, really, but I quite like. I think storytelling is quite a, a worthy yeah. thing to do. I quite like it. See, I'm annoyed because one of the shows I'm doing in Edinburgh, one about art, I told, I said, put it in spoken word, because you know, I, 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 I don't want to be under the same pressure of having to suddenly do a stupid voice in a desperate bid to get a laugh. And I jump up and down and I gurn and I do uh, stupid voices. But unfortunately, it's been put in comedy. So now, yeah. during what I thought was going to be a very interesting take on the life and death of Stanley Spencer, I'll have to jump up and down yeah, every now and again people, doing stupid I think, voices. I think, I think we as performers and we in the industry care way more about those distinctions than yeah, other people do. So I've met members of the public who think a three-star review is quite good. Yeah. And oh, great! You know, when, you know, for us, we're like, oh, it read like a five. You know, I, I think we we get so caught up in this little bubble about, you know, especially in Edinburgh. I think for most people, they just go, it was a show about this. What section was it? Oh, I don't know. What section it was in. Was well, it? that's an inch because I I, th- I I would agree with you. I think in the last few years, I've realised some nights I think that the club stand-up of many years ago still goes, oh, there's not a laugh. There's not a laugh. I better yeah. find a laugh. And then if I can manage to ride that and yeah. not bother, then afterwards you sometimes find what appeared to be a plain one in terms of, of audience laughter action can be actually a much more potent show. 
yeah, yeah. And the audiences don't mind. They go, you know, they don't necessarily. I think this, a lot of this problem does stem from from comedy because comedy is a device that became a genre. <laughs> You know, and I and I think and so therefore people who go to comedy clubs and that and those people who perform at you know comedians or people who perform at comedy clubs, um, you know you get you get obsessed with that laugh thing and I think it comes from that. Whereas I don't know, it's it's not the same in other genres really. I mean, I guess with spoken word, it's like I guess if you didn't speak any words, people start to feel a bit you know. But, but it's, it's you know, it's less niche, isn't it? You know, it speaks some well, words. Well, you're judged, I think, on a di- on a different parameters because there's a thing where. People is it can, everyone knows comedy, yeah. but not necessarily everyone knows poetry. So if they yeah. see you, they can't immediately go, I saw him, right? And and I was angry by the third, you know, whether it's free verse or whether it's patterned, yeah. you know, whatever it is. I, I mean, there, saying, are, oh. there are some people out there like that, Robin, but they don't, they don't get out very much. <laughs> but it's not. But overall, I think that people don't, in the same way that sometimes when people are judging art, they think, oh, I feel quite angry about it, but I'm not sure I can say anything about it. Whereas comedy, they can go, well, I saw it, it was rubbish. Because I didn't laugh, yeah, exactly. Even though it's the most subjective thing in the world, laughing or something. Now, can you give me some advice? And I've, uh, I don't know if it's poetry, but I've started writing things that almost appear to be poetry uh-huh. uh, for a show, just as an exercise, because I hadn't found... Basically, Phil Jupiter said to me, he said, I don't understand it. Everyone is meant to be a poet and then they become a stand-up comedian. No one does it the other way around, you idiot. Yeah. What is, how did you, when you first start approaching an idea... And you look for what are you looking for, both of you, in terms of structuring and creating rhythm? How do you? I mean, for you, is it a thing where, for some people, it seems to come very immediately and they write very, very fast, and then they just do little changes. And other people, it seems they write and then it goes in the drawer, well, and then they write and then it goes yeah. in the drawer. Well, you can't. I think if you're writing in any kind of strict kind of meter, you can't write that quickly anyway. It just you just you can't. You, you can you can go for it all day and you can get it done but you can't just you know write as fast as your hand can move across the page because you are you know you are constructing you've got to make everything scan and this play I've just written is you know it's eight and a half thousand words and it's near, most of it's in um, blank verse so I'm a bit pentameter unrhymed da-dum 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 is a rough button. and but you know, at the end of writing something that long you, you do you do find speaking in verse quite easy. I can you can walk, I can have a conversation and almost do it in, in iams, um, but you just can't really splurge at that sort of speed. So you, it does have to be a fairly meticulous putting together. Um, but to, to answer your original question, I, I think it, um, I I like to get a line, like a, a good line. Once you've got a line, and often that will dictate whether what what, what, what what rhythm or length the other lines will be in. You know, just, you get something. You just like you've got you start, you grab a thread of something. And you start reeling it back in from there for one one good line. I think often. What about you, John? When you're moving from something being written for the page and then actually in the in performance, is there a transition or? Yeah, I think I'm uh, opposite to Luke in a way because my certainly the story that I'm doing at Edinburgh, it's about TV, and so I didn't think it would be a show at first. I kind of started to write it just out of interest to see what would happen, and I just I did a gig in Sheffield and then went to a pub afterwards because I had this one idea about an old, co- an old collection of old copies of the Radio Times that I had in my house. And I thought, I'll start to write about that and see what happens. And I just stayed in the pub all night and I went back to the place I was staying and stayed up till about two or three in the morning just writing it. And then in the end, I had this massive 5,000-word story 
that was had a beginning, middle, and end. You're so cool. You went to the pub to I write your show. I said, I can't do that. I need, yeah. I need deadly silence in order to be able to write. Well, you see, the difference is that you a hoarder. Am I a hoarder? Yeah. No, I live. I, I, I walk, I walk the way of the Zen, Robin. And that helps, I think. I think. Yeah, I think, I think the uh... like John Cooper Clark. I've got it down to a, a, a George Foreman grill and some disinfectant spray, and that's all. <laughs> I and a mind filled with Elvis. <laughs> yeah. I was saying to someone, I, I did Celebrity Pointless with uh, uh, John Cooper Clark, and uh, accidentally. That's a great sentence. We just, we just, we just let that sink in. We, we, we were in the academics version as well because he of course is Dr John Cooper Clark yes. and I quite often stand next to a professor yeah. so that was enough to then be placed with six academics yeah, well that probably makes you qualifies you more than John Cooper Clark with his honorary doctorate <laughs> I think Joe Brown's got 36 honorary doctorates yeah. oh wow my word what did you um, in terms of studying because Obviously, you're dealing with a lot of different ideas in the 1980s. Mm. Where did you start in terms of your research? Well, I want I wanted to write. I, I read about Red Wedge. I didn't know about Red Wedge, and I heard this anecdote that when um, Damon Albarn got, got John Prescott got in contact with Damon Albarn and said, "I'd like you to meet Tony." This is back in '94, and Damon's first word was like, "It's not going to be like Red Wedge, is it?" And, and, and Red Wedge has sort of taken on. This was a for those who don't know, it was a, 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 um, a pressure group, you know, sort of associated with Labour, run by Paul Weller and Billy Bragg, and you know, bands and stand-ups did gigs to raise money and, and, and awareness for Labour. But it's uh, the idea was that the coolness of the rock stars would rub off on the politicians. But and what happened is the uncoolness of the politicians yeah. rubbed off on the rock stars, and and the, and the Star Council and Billy Bragg were were kind of became niche after that. <laughs> anyway, but so I was interested in that idea. Uh, and so I wanted to create a character that I could live in that time. I also wanted to write about Corbyn today and, and the infighting within Labour and people just sort of being absolutist in their views and not being able to compromise um, and where that kind of infighting gets you. Uh, but I didn't want to write about today because it changes, you know, week on week. Um, so I create this character going there and as it happens, I didn't end up writing that much about Red Ridge at all in the end, but, it, but it, I did take him on tour with a band uh, who was sort of trying to do a Red Wedge thing but use it to make money so they were like doing a big political tour so this band he's with they go on tour uh, during the 1987 election campaign and they call the tour, they call the, the tour on the election trail and they just do gigs every night so sort of follow the politicians around so. but yeah I mean I, I, I just I think as it was, I just research wise I just watched loads of documentaries about Tony Benn <laughs> It was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely. And John, for you, was it mainly going through the shed and the Radio Times and piecing together this uh, archive of your viewing habits? Yeah, it was. Um, half of it is about the Radio Times, but then I thought it would be more interesting to talk about the changing way of how people watch TV. Because I was at my friend's house and I saw the way they were. Like their girlfriend had an iPad and she was kind of half watching something, kind of going from room to room. And at the same time, I had this idea of this collection of copies of the Radio Times that goes back to 1984, and I just thought the contrast is so incredible. And just what, were they? Sorry, were they really your granddad's yeah, Radio yeah, Times? Um, they were, yeah. yeah, yeah. Copies of the Radio How Times. far back? 1984 is the first. Oh, I see. That was one of my favourite things as a child was looking at you know really old copies of the radio, which of course when you're a child is two years ago. You know, yeah, to, to yeah. in 1978 look at 1976. Yeah. Was uh, and, and there was one, there was a 1967 copy of the TV Times in which Martin Shaw from TV's Professionals played Jimmy Porter in the TV version of Look Back in Anger. Imagine the excitement that, to yeah. actually just look down at listings. But it's quite, yeah, it gets quite exciting. I guess it's how my brain works is that I find that mm. kind of thing really interesting. 
Um, this is where how we're really similar, I think. So we work very different styles, but both of us are just fascinated by the cultural tapestry of Britain, and particularly if it's a bit nostalgic in the past. Yeah, and yeah. you can see Britain getting more modern and more colourful, and the Radio Times is getting glossier and glossier as kind of the years go by, and Channel suddenly Channel Five is there, and it's it, it's quite incredible. So. Going back to the comedy thing, I could have done a radio a show about the Radio Times where I just read out old letters from the Radio Times, and that could have easily filled a, a, generated an hour of material. Oh, that sounds rubbish. That sounds like the kind of show that I do, where I just <laughs> read out things that I found in a bookshop in a sarcastic voice. So it was almost, a, I thought maybe this would be a found show, but then I wanted to write about the modern world and TV and, um, and actually how watching TV is you do feel stressed about how many things are on Netflix and on the iPlayer that you've not seen yet and everyone's talking about this new show everyone's talking about a new season of Orange is a New Black thing I've not finished the new season of House of God and it's just never ending it, it it's almost competitive I what find should some, be relaxing sometimes that's all people talk about it is yeah. it's got a whole evening on what box sets you have and haven't watched yeah and I think when that happens it's not box sets is it now it's the virtual well yeah the, Netflix, the virtual the box set Prime, but I mean it's so. essentially this thing of like I think that when the conversation goes to that and I'm not saying I'm opposed to a little bit of it but I think really that's the moment you know you should get another conversation well it's quite easy for me because I no I haven't seen it no, no I haven't seen yeah, it no. I kind of stopped at The Sopranos I thought The Sopranos was such a one of those. work one of those one of those I don't have time anymore um, that, what do you find because that isn't it I, I think there's, there was a point where the Radio Times went from being a rougher course of paper because yeah. TV Times of course glossy glossy yeah awful it's, glossy. A, it's all ITV whereas the Radio Times is BBC yeah and it would all have it always have something from their Hollywood you know, someone in Hollywood as opposed Trashy. to someone in yeah, that's right. Ealing yeah. and, uh, <laughs> Ealing so lovely, lovely Ealing <laughs> so what have you found oh, well, I suppose you shouldn't give it away because that will obviously be the uh, the turning point of the uh, of the production I presume <laughs> yeah well it's just I've I found a, a very beautiful story that you can trace someone's life through the shows that have been served on it and it does all add together very neatly to form someone's entire life it's quite nice just analysing something to that extent does it also become depressing where you also see how slight even very famous people's career is from the moment they're like Dickie Henderson Lou? no I'm sorry Robert John? no huge star Dickie Henderson but Almost on Lobs the point of death. Language. Forgotten. If, if you go through Radio Times, probably still around in 1984. Oh, who's on a Sunday night at the Plunder Palladium? Of course it's Dickie Henderson. Of course it's Dickie yeah, Henderson. Yeah. Well, Dickie night. Henderson's doing some stuff with Lionel Blair. Dickie Henderson. Yeah. And yet now, I could sit in a field with two men in their late 30s. With two, 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 you know, mid 30s. And late 30s. And. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think what? once you are over 35, you are technically in your late 30s. Yeah, it's all getting late now, isn't it? Mid-30s. Um, are, are you going to watch any of the uh, authors who are on at Speakeasy uh, over the weekend? Well, I'm watching Will Young right now. He's having a fag. He is, isn't he? He's not talking, though. I mean, I think, he'll do, I think he won't smoke it. He won't be allowed to smoke it in there, so he'll have to do talking later on. Uh, but, yeah, I think I might look and watch... Um, watch Mark Thomas. Oh, like Linton Crazy Johnson. Thomas. Oh, when's he? He gets a name check. I don't know. At some point over the weekend, I'll look at the program. But um, yeah, I saw him at Larn. He was fantastic. Yeah, I haven't. When I was um, 
very young, when I was like 20, he came to our uni and we booked him for this night and I, I was artist liaison. I, I did a set as well, but I went and picked him up from the station and he didn't. He was really sort of very serious man, he didn't talk to anyone all night, I was the only person he talked to. And then, because I thought it would be this was the pinnacle of my career, I thought, it, I, I, I thought that was it, I'd peaked. So when he was on stage, I drank some of his wine, I thought, well, I've got a story to tell the kids now. <laughs> and now I'm going to have to do it again, aren't I? <laughs> Yeah. And John? Uh, Mark Thomas, I'm looking forward to. I'm really not a writer, but the Divine Comedy one on Sunday. And I've been listening to their new album, and it's so refreshing to hear a singer just have fun writing silly but fun songs. He's got a good sense of fun about the Neil Hammond. Yeah, it's brilliant. So that's what I'm quite excited about. And what are you reading generally, Luke? moment oh what am I reading do you know what I've read so little this year because every sort of spare second I felt I should be watching the Tony Ben documentary just working on this play I really get better at working on these long form things they don't just take over my life um, but I read a really interesting book called The State of the Union no not The State of the Union Unions and Disunions I've forgotten what it's called it's about the United Kingdom it was released just before the Scottish Independence referendum and it's about the United Kingdom I did, you know, it's the one const- of the best const- recommendations yeah. <laughs> we've had so far John is there a title you can half remember no can I can I, can I do you know what I've been rereading the uh, collective works of John Betjeman actually these last couple of weeks because it's my little safe place that makes me happy now where is in terms of uh, I suppose his. Oh, it's his, called his, Acts his, of Union and Disunion. Acts of Union and Disunion. I don't know why you didn't remember that catchy yeah. title. <laughs> um, what? Uh, where, where does John Betjeman stand now amongst poets in terms of? Uh, I think because I think there was a, a while where perhaps people thought there was something overly light and novelty about him. If you look from a distance, yeah. and yet he's. Well, I think he's one of those things. In there yeah, there's well. lo- and loads of lust as well. He's a smutty, <laughs> sad old man, <laughs> and he's yeah. So I think there's a lot of that in it. I mean, there, and, there, and it is really dated in lots of ways, but um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's good. And you listen to something like um, indoor games in Newbury or something like that. You know, it's 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 dark, it's sad. He captures childhood really well. Yeah, and he's just a, he's just really good at right. You know, he just he writes in sing-songy verse and I like that I write in sing-songy verse so I just felt like I have an affinity with him I think I think there's still tremendous charm to what, what he did yeah, yeah. there's nothing better than finding on YouTube him going to look at St Enadoc Church where um, he is now buried yeah it's a wonderful thing yeah. where and then those, those final documentaries I can't remember who uh, when he was still when he was ill and he was being pushed around by uh I'd just been taken back some, some of those young, Some too. young nurse. Um, <laughs> tragically, no, it, was, uh, no, it wasn't what he may have... Uh, do you think it helped that he actually got that out in the verse? Because other times we read about poets, but it turns out it's only when their letters are found under the floorboards that we find out they might not have represented the values we imagined. Yeah, um, uh, well, and also there was that thing, you know, when, when uh, Andrew Motion published the biography of Larkin, you know, and all the sort of the racism and stuff came out. That was, that was, that was, you know, that yeah, that sorry is it. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was an open secret that he had a, he had a, he had a town wife and a country wife, and uh, he was. Uh, um, but have you heard that? Story of um, I don't know if we got time. Can yeah, I yeah. Story? About his biographer Bevers Hillier. 
There's a man called Bevis Hillier. He spent, tw- he spent 25 years writing a three-volume biography of John Betjeman's life, right? And when the second one of those came out in 2002, it was reviewed in the Sunday Times by Ian Wilson. He had the story. And uh, Ian Wilson uh, hated it, right? He did a total poison pen review of it. Who had also written... Uh, well, no, um, well, well, then what happened? Three ah. years later, he announces that he's writing his own little biography of Birchman and he's going to toss it off in nine months because he's got more important things to move on to. So Bevis Hilly thinks, right, fuck you. So he fakes a letter, supposedly from a French lover, previously unknown about French lover, um, uh, to you know that John Birchman had written. And he sprinkles his letter with just enough information like you know Benjamin, Benjamin isms so he signs it off tinkity tonk sort of things which you know because apparently the queen mother used to sign off her letters tinkity tonk tinkity tonk old fruit and down with the Nazis so he does all this <laughs> sends this letter to Ian Wilson posing as the French woman's daughter claiming she'd found it in an attic Ian Wilson then falls for it hook line sinker puts it in his book publication day comes great fanfare it was the, it was the centenary month and um, he then uh, you know Bevacino then tells a few um literary editors you want to look at that letter it looks a little bit fake to him and all the reviews are then obsessed with the fact that A.N. Wilson's been duped but not only that the letter is an acrostic the first letter of every sentence spells out A.N. Wilson is a shit <laughs> and the T of shit is tinkity tunk <laughs> so yeah anyway but that's that's my favourite literary piece of schadenfreude <laughs> um, John who Sorry. are you waiting to have a literary spat with <laughs> I think it's time um, once you've got the third book out the way Amos. literary spats uh, can have one with well, you would probably be easiest because you're here now. Can we have a little spat? Oh, it would be terrible. I've already had my book put back by a year. It would take me ages to actually start a spat. I can't even finish a bloody book. Oh, right, well, uh, I'll probably with Luke then. Yeah, we'll have a spat. We'll have a spat. We'll have a yeah, spat. Spats and acrostics. Yeah. Um, so, apart from the show, anything else, John? The... I'm doing lots and lots of little thing bits and bobs at the moment. I did a TV thing. Sky One a couple of years ago called After Hours which was incredibly fun and very enjoyable so I'm just trying to kind of build on that and I've got a couple more TV projects it was a bloody great sitcom that John I loved it yeah thank you very much Um, so yeah trying to do trying to recreate that really and do do that all over again because it was a hugely enjoyable thing to do so um, yeah more bit of telly bit of Radio 4 hopefully a few more gigs and another book. I'm trying to write a book about local radio as well. So that's kind of my project for the next six months. Do you think you spent... Was your childhood more a childhood of listening to the radio than in the corner with books? Were you predominantly under the sheets? Um, not particularly. I think... Because I wrote a book about radio a few years ago and a lot of people thought that I was this kind of radio anorak or radio enthusiast. But I, I, I think it comes across quite well because... I'm just someone who quite likes radio and has always listened to radio. I think people who are radio nerds, I think, would not be able to write about radio in such a kind of objective way. So I like—I think I probably like radio a little. I, I do have always listened to radio a lot, but um, not in, not not too much, not in a crazy way, not in a not in an obsessive way. Yeah, because they used to. I remember there was one guy who used to come to a lot of radio recordings and. Uh, Sometimes he'd actually record them himself and then see if he could do a tighter edit than the one that went out on Radio 4. That was never the man you were, was it? No. No. Cheers, Um, John. But yeah, I think Radio Tells is a good forum for storytelling and that's what I want to kind of capture, that that downtime that people have. It's just about storytelling, really. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Robin. There you go. There you are. 
thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with a normal episode of Book Shambles with Robin and Josie. Just a few quick final announcements. If you're going to the QED Festival this coming weekend, October 13, 14, 15 in Manchester, we will be doing a live Book Shambles recording on the Sunday. It will be a sciencey book shambles. Robin will be hosting and we'll be having a panel with uh, Helen Chersky, Dean Burnett, uh, Ginny Smith and Helen Keane on that. So if you are at the festival, do pop along and see that or you've still got a day to buy tickets, I guess. And don't forget, you can become a Patreon supporter of Book Shambles if you like, just uh, as little as a dollar an episode and you will get extended episodes, you'll get bonus episodes, but prizes, behind-the-scenes stuff, all sorts of stuff on there. And also Nine Lessons and Carols for Godless People back this December. Robin, Josie, Jamel Kalili, Simon Singh, Lucy Green, Matt Parker, all sorts of people involved with that. That's CosmicShambles.com slash Nine Lessons. And that's probably enough uh, plugging at the end of this episode. Hope you enjoyed. We will see you next time or hear from you now. You'll hear from us next time. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm.